The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Well, I'm delighted we're joined for the Culture Club tonight by an old work colleague of mine from Sunday Tribune Days, who has now gone on to much bigger and better things with an acclaimed first novel called Breaking Point, which is getting rave reviews. Adele Coffey, congratulations on the publication of the book. Thank you very much. You're really dating me now by saying an old colleague from the Sunday Tribune. Well, you were a young student, in (laughs) fairness. You came into us from college, so you were the the baby of the office, actually. (laughs) I'm joking. Um, Yeah, I mean, the fact that the newspaper is no longer even in existence uh, says something, but uh, they were great days, actually. That was such an energetic, young um, place and... I, I learned everything I know actually there because um, it was so sort of understaffed that you really got a chance to to work and to write. And I know a lot of my friends who went to some of the more established, uh, bigger papers, you know, they got to make coffee, whereas I got to be a journalist, which was exactly what I wanted well, to be. I remember we brought you in on placement and you did so well that we hired you and you were there for many years afterwards. But now, as I said, you've gone to writing fiction. So for people who aren't familiar with this new novel, Breaking Point, What's it all about? Who's it for? Well, it's called Breaking Point and it's about how difficult my life was working under Matt Cooper. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No, I'm sorry. sorry. Um, It's not about that at all. It is about two women. One is called Susanna and she's a a sort of high flying doctor and a media personality as well. And the other is a journalist called Adelaide who's kind of got a difficult past and she's uh, kind of on the run from that a little bit. She doesn't really want to deal with it emotionally. It's autobiographical, is it's it? Absolutely not, because Adelaide <laughs> is a brilliant journalist. Um, but so she's, they're both essentially at their different breaking points. And um, one morning, Susanna is very busy and she's dropping her two children to crash and she actually forgets to drop one and leaves one in the car and that sort of sets in motion the whole book um, and there's a trial and Adelaide is a journalist she's covering the trial so I really just wanted to write about where we are in our society now because I certainly felt very under pressure myself as um, as a new mother and trying to keep my career on the go and you know family commitments and all this always on culture that we're living in and I wanted to write about that um, because to me, it felt like um, everybody seemed to be coping very well, uh, except for me. This was a pre-COVID book though as well, wasn't it? It was, yeah. I wrote it in 2019. Um, when I, see, I think I think everybody was at burnout in 2019. I think we're, we're all living such fast-paced lives now, particularly with this constant connection we have with online lives. You know, we all have those you know, two lives really. We've got our online life and we've got our real life and and we're expected to be connected the whole time. We're expected to be contactable the whole time. Like the fact that the government have introduced this code of practice um, for the right to disconnect. And now I know it's not legislation yet, but I presume it's going to head that way like France with a bit of luck. <laughs> we might not have to answer answer emails after 6pm, but, but yeah, so it was pre-pandemic, but um, I think when the pandemic hit and suddenly people were working from home and they had so much pressure with kids at home and even without kids at home, like, you know, people were expected to do so much that that really sort of shone a spotlight on on that topic of burnout and it's become kind of centre stage, really. Um, so, so yeah, it was, um, it's it's kind of sort of hit a nerve, I think, in terms of um, what people have been experiencing themselves. Uh, you're not the only person from that era in the Sunday Tribune who has become a novelist. I think of Paul Lynch, Paul Howard yeah. and other examples. So what is it that you want to write fiction rather than 
the factual stuff that you have done for the last 20 years? Oh, well, I, I do. I do love uh, writing journalism, um, but really the dream from as long as I can remember, Matt, was to write a novel. And for me, studying journalism and then becoming a journalist was this really pragmatic um, decision as a way that I could write and earn a living because I knew that I couldn't just like finish school or finish college and then be like, now I'm going to sit and write novels because it was a kind of get out and get a job <laughs> situation. Um, so I I thought, OK, journalism, that would be a good way to um, to be able to write every day, which is, was my passion even back then. And um, and also, you know, earn a living and make a living. So so that's what I did. So it was kind of an accidental entry. Like there was no kind of um, uh, Washington Post uh, inspiration where I was like, I'm going to seek out the truth and expose um, corruption. It wasn't I, I wasn't interested in journalism in that way. I wasn't like one of those incredibly passionate news hounds. Um, as you discovered very quickly, I think, when I was put on news and then I was quickly moved off news <laughs> into the arts section, which was my natural home. Like, I loved books. I loved music. Um, and you also at one stage wanted to be a rock star. I, well, now, that's, I don't know if I wanted to be a rock star, but I tried to be a rock star. I know I definitely did want to be a rock star as well. I was just, I was a musician and I was playing in a band, um, a few bands actually in Dublin um, in sort of between... God, actually, the last gig I played, if I'm honest, I was seven months pregnant with my first child. Really? <laughs> the drummer who was in the band was getting married and she got myself and the other girl to play like a couple of songs. Um, so she was on her st on the stage in her wedding dress playing drums. <laughs> and I was there with my enormous pregnancy bump playing electric guitar, which I had to play side saddle, as I'll call it. And um, and Mary was playing bass, so that was kind of like a, a reunion gig um, after we broke up. But yeah, what was the was, name of your band? Are your bands? Well, the the most recent incarnation was called Medea, and we just kind of felt a sort of and this is I'm I'm sensing a theme here uh, between Medea and Breaking Point. My goodness, but um, yeah, we we really we liked that play and we liked the the female character in that play a lot. So we just thought, yeah, that'll be good because it was a female band as well. So so yeah, so I, I and what type of music? I suppose it was rock music, indie rock music, probably. Write your own stuff or were you oh, doing yeah. covers? We, we wrote our own stuff. Um, we were incredibly lazy. We all had full-time jobs. Like, we just, we did it because we enjoyed it. Um, we released, I think, throughout all the bands, I think we released, like, one EP. <laughs> so we weren't incredibly prolific, um, but we played a lot of live. And what were the names of the other bands? Is it that you changed the lineup that you kept changing? Yeah, the name we changed the, the lineup. Yeah, it was usually due to somebody broke up with a guitarist and they had to leave the band then, obviously. So, <laughs> but the three uh, core members stayed the same. We just, there was another band called Playground Psychotic and a band called Michael Knight, which we sort of played in. There was a, a guy who wrote. He wrote the music. So, um, so yeah, it was a lot of fun and it was a great thing to sort of have um, as a creative outlet while, you know, working because work, full-time work at that age, it was, it was quite intense. You know, you're, you're still very much a young person. You want to, you know, experience everything that life has to offer. So that was a great sort of pressure release, I suppose, to go out and turn up amps really loud because it was electric, you know, and it was just, it was fantastic to do that. You used to see me going off at my guitar on my back from the Sunday Tribune offices for band practice. And of course, I was I was doing the Phantom Radio at the time, which was a pirate radio station at the time before it was um, given its license. And of course, it's 
gone full circle now again. Okay, well, let's get to some of your musical choices. So what's the first single you'll ever admit to buying? I was, well, this is the truth, actually. I was so glad you asked me what's the first single you ever bought and not the first album you ever bought. <laughs> well, you can tell us what the album was okay. if you want. So the first album was um, New Kids on the Block, NKOTB. You know, was it Hanging Tough or something like that? I think I have it was no called? idea. Oh, come on now, you do. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was the first album and it was bought on cassette tape, which will tell you um, the exact time. But the first single I bought was by Suede and I think it was Animal Nitrate. Um, which, but actually, let's hear a bit of it. Oh. the Britpop era Animal Nitrate by Suede so why did you go for them rather than an Oasis or Blur which is perhaps to your credit oh thank you <laughs> um, well I'm just actually being brought right back um, that was kind of a, an interesting experience to hear that song because I actually haven't heard it in probably a decade or more but um yeah, I had this kind of like awakening moment when I saw Brett Anderson on top of the pops. I think they were doing their first single was called The Drowners. And I saw it um, on some sort of repeat one morning before I went to school. And I had this kind of moment of, you know, you hear people talking about when they first saw David Bowie and they were just like, whoa, who is this guy? And he was wearing like this sort of like black negligee that was open to the waist and he was incredibly thin and he had this little bob. And I was just like, this oh my God, I feel funny. <laughs> it was just like one of those moments of, this is amazing. I love whoever this is and I need to find out everything about them and him. And so I was kind of obsessed after that and really loved them and loved the guitarist, loved Bernard Butler's guitar. And at the time I was kind of learning how to play guitar as well. But yeah, I don't know. Like Oasis, they didn't really appeal to me because they were quite laddish and I wasn't quite laddish. And, and Blur, again, it was that sort of... It wasn't very sophisticated, I didn't think. Now, I think Blur are a brilliant band and I think their music's amazing. And also, I do think Oasis have like some of the best songs, obviously, um, looking back. But at the time, they weren't... Um, so they, they would have just been starting out at the time. So they hadn't sort of developed that songwriting. Um, I'm not going to say skill because they obviously had their own skill, but they, they didn't appeal to me, basically because they weren't wearing the black negligee. Fair enough. No, let's go to <laughs> you imagine Liam Gallagher album. in that. <laughs> I don't want to start imagining that. G give me a favorite album. I, I, you're doing the thing that a lot of people do. Say. You can't just know, have one. You've broken them down into sort of genres. Uh, yeah, I know. It's so hard to choose, though. But um, so I, if I had to choose an all time favorite album, I think I would choose. Like, there's so many. Like, there's the Beatles, there's Neil Young. Like, how do you choose, Matt? Those are albums from before you were ever born. I uh, know, but I, I adore them. I adore them. I, thank you for saying that. 
Um, I love the Smiths. Like I in in college, I was obsessed with the Smiths, um, the Lemonheads, so many different ones. But I think Joni Mitchell's Blue. I just think that is a perfect album. So unbelievably unique. So groundbreaking in terms of her guitar playing. Her voice is so perfect. It is one of those voices like Aretha Franklin. Um, it's just one of those voices that's a kind of uh, happening. You know, it's it's a gift. And there's no way, no matter how many tens of thousands of hours you sing a day, that you could ever hope to sound like that. Um, and I just think that confluence of her songwriting ability, her musical or her musicality and the voice, the God-given voice, that it's just fabulous. We're not going to play Joni Mitchell because you're far from the first person who's nominated of Blue as favourite album. But you have also nominated one that I have to say I'm not familiar with. An album Wise called... Blood. Yeah. Titanic Rising. Yeah. This, again, this album was a revelation to me. Um, again, it was one of those moments I remember hearing a song on the radio and I was like, stopped. I was in the kitchen. I said, what is that song? And that rarely happens now, you know, because we've, we're, we've got Spotify, we've got everything so available to us that when you hear a song on the radio and you're stopped in your tracks by it, I was like, this is unbelievable. I was just like shushing everyone in the house so I could hear who it was at, at the end of the song. And it was Wise Blood, um, who's this woman called Natalie Laura Mearing. And she's an American singer and songwriter. And She's an again, she's got that amazing, amazing musicality, plays keyboards um, and she has this voice, which is the love child of Joni Mitchell and Karen Carpenter. And it is so perfect. It's unbelievable. It's so emotional. Like you can just it's like she's expressing uh, whatever it is you're feeling at that time of whatever pain you have. She is just blasting it out and exercising it for you. From that album, we have the track Everday. But there's definitely an Amy Mann influence there. But I love that. I love a female vocal that is um, just so crystal clear and so smooth and that it sounds so effortless. It's just, I just think it's so beautiful. I had bought tickets to see her in Vicar Street in, I think it was like June of 2020. 
And, you know, to think how naive we all were back in March 2020, we were like, yeah, by June, we'll be able to go to gigs again. <laughs> so I'm sure she'll come back through I, 2022. I really hope she hopefully. does now, yeah. Before we take a break on the Culture Club with Adele Coffee, we better get a favourite band or artist out of you as well. What are you going for? Favourite artist, like I suppose in terms of influential um, or influence on me, has got to be Slater Kinney, who are this American uh, female band um, who really influenced me in terms of uh, they kind of showed me that you can be in a band, you can play music without being a virtuoso. You know, a lot of their early, well, like their early albums were, you know, one string on the guitar, essentially, not even one chord, but like one string. So they were kind of very, they came out of the Riot Girl movement in the 90s and they were very um, DIY, I suppose. And I first came across these when I was in Chicago. I was on a sort of Erasmus exchange in Chicago and I was working in this coffee shop called The Joy of Ireland. And I was an Irish, real life Irish woman working there. Um, and it was fab. It sold like crystal, temporary crystal and water for crystal. And it sold uh, Kerrygold butter. And they had this... Potato crisps. Potato crisps. And they had this little coffee shop. And they had like Nicholas Moss pottery and stuff. But they had this little coffee shop that was, um, you know, it sold Barry's tea for like, um, you know, uh, a lot of money, I think. <laughs> but uh, you'd balk at how much it was. Um, but yeah, so this woman worked there and she was this really cool woman. She... At the time, I thought she was way older than me, but she was probably like five years older than me. She's probably like 25 or something. And she said, oh, you might like this album. And she gave me this album called Dig Me Out by Slater Kinney. And I almost can't listen to it now. I overplayed it so much. Um, and it also it just reminds me of that time in my life in Chicago. And when I came home from that um, exchange in Chicago, I uh, responded to an ad in Hot Press looking for a looking to start a female band because I was so inspired and I rang up and I said you know I play guitar and they said we've got a guitarist can you sing and I was like yes even though I cannot sing but uh that's how I got into the band and it was all through the sort of influence and inspiration of them um but yeah in that spirit of DIY just you know lie until you can sing essentially <laughs> here's the track one more hour
Slater Kinney, Dig Me Out is the album. One more hour. Could you play the guitar and all like that? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> That's making the commute a little bit more noisy and interesting for your listeners, Matt. <laughs> we need to take a break. Adele Coffee is with us for the Culture Club here on The Last Word of Today FM. And we'll be back to talk about the best gig she was ever at and her favourite movies and television and books here on The Culture Club after this quick break. Welcome back. Adele Coffee is with us for The Culture Club. Her first novel, Breaking Point, has recently been published to considerable acclaim a terrific achievement, a new career as a novelist for Adele Coffey. But when I guess finish with music, because you mentioned earlier about gigs that you weren't able to go to during COVID, what's the best gig you remember being at? Yeah, I really had to sort of think about this one because a lot of the gigs I was at, I actually don't remember being at. I think, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, but no, I don't think you are actually. It's, it's, well, you know, it's all part of growing up, Matt. But um, it was very, I loved gigs. I, I went to gigs all the time. Um, and I think one of the gigs that I really, that really stands out when I was kind of trying to remember what, what one really stands out to me. The one that really stood out to me was, again, a band that I wasn't really familiar with and that I haven't, like necessarily bought all their albums since, but it was 2013 and it was Primavera, Primavera which is this um, festival, outdoor festival in Barcelona. And um, this band called Deer Hunter were playing and they were headlining and I hadn't heard of them before, but we went along and I was blown away. Um, they have this front man called Bradford Cox, they're from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, he's so unbelievably charismatic. He was wearing like... Black negligee. No, but th there's a theme now. He was wearing a dress. <laughs> I, I, I love a man in a dress. What can I say? Um, but he was just unbelievably charismatic. And he was playing to thousands of people. And I had never heard his music. He was playing brand new music from the album Monomania. And the energy was just off the scale and the the guitars were loud, they were abrasive, the drums were rock and roll. The guy on the drums had his hood up. It was just, there was a vibe coming off the stage. And after that gig, I just remember all of us, we, there was a big group of us there and we all just felt like that was one of the best gigs we've ever seen in our lives. And we tried to buy tickets to see them the next night. They were playing a small bar downtown and we were like, we need to see this band again, but they were sold out. Obviously, other people were way more connected to, than we were, but they had heard of them and they had bought their tickets. But it was just unbelievable. And you can actually see that gig on YouTube if you want to check it out. Which is why we actually have a little bit of the audio from Primavera in 2013 and Deer Hunter. <laughs> Don't need to cry. 
So there's Deer Hunter performing at Primavera. Primavera. Yeah, that's what it is in 2013. Adele Coffee is with us for the Culture Club. So nominate a favourite movie for us, please. Favourite movie, I didn't have to think twice. Moonstruck, 1987, American romantic comedy, one of my favourite films with Cher and Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage before his teeth were fixed. Just a, a really young actor. Let's hear the two of them in Moonstruck. You know, my mother guessed that my father was seeing somebody. That Mona, I mean, she's some piece of cheap goods. Who am I to talk? What's the matter? How can you ask me that? You're making me feel guilty. You are guilty. I'm guilty. Of what? Only God can point the finger, Loretta. Yeah, well, I know what I know. And what do you know? Okay, you tell me my life, I'll tell you yours. I'm a wolf, you run to the wolf of me. That don't make you no lamb. You're gonna marry my brother. Why you wanna sell your life short? Planet safe's just about the most dangerous thing a woman like you could do. I mean, you waited for the right man the first time. Why didn't you wait for the right man again? Because he didn't come. I'm here. You're late. <laughs> You're late. Okay, you just told me something off air there. The guy who wrote that wrote... Wild Mountain Time. And I'm suddenly listening to that and going, maybe that's not too far away from Wild Mountain <gasps> Time. Maybe, yeah, maybe Italian-Americans, but look... Maybe Wild Mountain Time is to Italian-Americans what Moonstruck is to Irish people. But this film for me is so beautiful. It's so romantic. The, the soundtrack is La Boheme. It's so, um, just, it's so funny. There's so many physical gags and there's so many physical gags that you only get on the second watch or the 100th watch, if you like. I've seen this so many times. Do you know when I got eye surgery, I was... You know, I, my eyes were covered, obviously, and I put on Moonstruck on my laptop in bed so I could listen to it because I knew the film so well. Uh, you could see every scene without having every to watch scene. it. Yeah, so I watched it. But Cher won an Oscar for this and she is absolutely phenomenal in it. And I don't think, you know, there's there's actually a lot of deep sort of commentary about family and also about men and women and about fidelity and a lot of Catholic uh, funny jokes and guilt. But um, I love the stuff about men and women because Olympia Dukakis is Cher's mom in it. And she's fantastic in it because she discovers that her husband is having an affair. And, you know, she's heartbroken about it, but she's also still in love with him and she's trying to make it work. But um, she... And your man John Maroney is in it as well. Uh, is it John Maroney? Mahoney? Mahoney. Um, Who is, of from course, Fraser. Fraser, yeah. yeah. Fraser's dad and he's a young actor in it as well and he's chasing these young women and you know she's they're asking the questions like what is it that makes men chase women and um, she's trying to connect it to mortality and you know also Cher is obviously she's having an affair with her fiance's brother and she's it, it's all about you know do we go with our heart or do we go with our head do we play it safe or do we go after the dangerous love that we can't control anyway clearly I'm just an awful romantic at heart. I love it. Move to television for me. As we ask about influential music when you were young, what sort of television did you watch when you were young? When I was young, like I, I loved The Wonder Years and also the other one I really remember loving was um, My So-Called Life, which had Claire Danes in it. People will know from Homeland. But uh, she was probably about 15 in this. I think, you know, she was really young and she played this teenager. It was like a kind of high school drama and um, she was just the young sort of every woman teenager that everyone could connect with. Um, and she wasn't like, 
incredibly beautiful. It, like she had dyed red hair in it and she looked like a normal teenager that you could connect with. And also Jared Leto or Leto um, was in it as the sort of bad boy um, love interest. He was like Connell from Normal People before uh, Connell, like years before Connell, because he was completely mute and there was just a lot of staring at each other. And it was so unbelievably sexy. Like it was just like, oh my God, Jordan Catalano. If you say the words Jordan Catalano to a woman of a certain age, she will know exactly who you're talking about and she'll go off into a misty eyed kind of reverie. What about modern day television as an adult? Oh my, like I, I'm addicted. I, sh- I, I Like I subscribe to every single platform you can get. I love television. I was talking to you about Yellow Jackets there a few minutes ago. I love it. Um, but my, if I had to pick an all-time favourite, it came down to The Sopranos and The Wire, but The Wire wins out every time. Because Why? It was just so groundbreaking. I know The Sopranos was groundbreaking too, but um, The Wire for me was, um, it had such a noble premise as well. David Simon, who was the writer, he kind of wanted to represent, he's a journalist as well, he wanted to represent the sort of factual um, reality and statistical reality. So there was a high body count in The Wire. And the reason there was, was because he said, well, listen, look at statistics in Maryland. This is what happens. This is how many people die before the age of 12. This is how many people die before the age of 20 when they're living that sort of gang life. And he themed each uh, season. So you had like a season about uh, the streets, a season about education, a season about um, media. There, so he, he takes a different topic for each season. And the characters, again, it was that thing of like bad guys and good guys. The bad guys were as compelling and you were as um, emotionally connected and sympathetic towards them as you were towards the good guys. Let's hear the late Michael Kenneth Williams as Omar Little taking the stand in the wire. You say you aren't here testifying against the defendant because of any deal you made with police. True that. That you're here because you, you... You want to tell the truth about what happened to Mr. Gant in that housing project parking lot? Yeah. When, in fact, you are exactly the kind of person who would, if you felt you needed to, shoot a man down on a housing project parking lot and then lie to the police about it, would you not? And look, I never put my gun on no citizen. You are a moral, are you not? You are feeding off the violence and the despair of the drug trade. You're stealing from those who themselves are stealing the lifeblood from our city. You are a parasite who leeches off Just like you, the culture man. of drugs. Excuse me? What? I got the shotgun. Got the briefcase. It's on the game, though, right? And that's where we're going to have to leave this radio part of the Culture Club tonight with Adele Coffey on that from The Wire. But if you want to hear more of Adele... Our podcast will have her favourite books and authors and also her favourite podcast too. So let's continue with the bit that will be in the podcast. Books, authors, as an author yourself, what do you read? Again, like television, I read everything. And also I'm interested because I find there's a lot of snobbery around um, books in particular. Um, Television, not so much. You know, you can watch something on television like, um, say, Emily in Paris, and you can watch The Wire. Last week, Gabriel Byrne, doing the Culture Club, spoke at length about his love for Coronation Street whenever he's back in Ireland. Exactly. Do you know, and there's no snobbery around it. But with books, if you decide you're going to read a Jilly Cooper followed by, you know, a pre-Goncourt winning uh, author, there's a kind of uh, a judgment. And I, I think that's 
that really annoys me. It really annoys me. But I will read everything. So I love to read um, everything from Marion Keys, who's Again, Rachel book is coming in, I think, April, is it? Um, it's it's the follow-up to Rachel's Holiday. So, like, I will devour that. And I will also, I, I love Claire Keegan's latest book. Claire Keegan's the most Small beautiful things writer. like these, small which many like people, a small book, but people doubt have one of the biggest impacts of 2021. It's a phenomenal book. And I think it's just over 100 pages long. And it says so much about Irish people and Irish culture. Um, so I'll read anything. And I really, I, I really admire writing. I really admire language and the use of language. I love storytelling. I love humor. Humor is really hard in, in books. Like you don't get it right uh, very often. Like someone like uh, Paul Howard gets humor. He's just, he's a genius. Uh, Marion Keyes, I will be chortling my way through uh, any book of hers, even when there are very serious themes at them. So yeah, I Again, I read anything, but if I was to think of my all-time favourite uh, author, that's such a hard one. But um, I think Daphne du Maurier, because she wrote Re um, Rebecca, and it is just, in my opinion, one of the best novels ever ever written. And people don't actually know a lot about Daphne du Maurier in terms of, like, she, she wrote this short story called Don't Look Now that was turned into that creepy film with uh, Donald Sutherland. Um... Uh, and she she just, she had a lot of really sort of weird, creepy stories, paranormal stuff. And Rebecca, people probably know because it was uh, made into a film with on Netflix there last year or the year before with Lily James. And again, I just feel even Hitchcock made a film of it and no one goes where the book goes in terms of a story. And I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who hasn't read the book, but the book is uh, way more dark and way more real than any of the adaptations. We have an excerpt from the opening chapter of Rebecca, read by Alex Kingston. Last night, I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. It seemed to me I stood by the iron gate leading to the drive, and for a while I couldn't enter, for it was chained and padlocked. Then, like all dreamers, I was suddenly possessed with supernatural powers and passed like a spirit through the barrier. The drive wound away in front of me, twisting and turning as it had always done. But as I advanced, I was aware that a change had come upon it. It was narrow and unkept, choked with grass and moss. On and on it wound. I hadn't thought the way to the house so long. And then suddenly, I came upon it. Mandalay. Our... Mandalay, secretive and silent as it had always been. The grey stones shining in the moonlight, the mullioned windows reflecting the terrace that sloped to the lawns and the lawns that stretched to the sea. Moonlight can play odd tricks upon the fancy. As I stood there, I could swear that the house wasn't an empty shell, but lived and breathed. Light came from the windows and curtains blew softly in the night air. Then a cloud hovered for an instant upon the moon, and the illusion went with it. The lights in the windows were extinguished. I looked upon a desolate shell, a sepulchre, our fear and suffering buried in the ruins. For Mandalay was ours no longer. Mandalay was no more. Read by Alex Kingston, Daphne du Maurier, Rebecca. As an author, Adele Coffey, having one published novel, which is getting considerable acclaim, but a second one that I know you're writing, when you then start measuring yourself against that type of work and all the other novelists you've mentioned, 
Does that inspire you or does it actually in some ways inhibit you feeling, oh my God, how can I actually match the type of things that I love reading? No, it like I know that it does inhibit some people, but it doesn't inhibit me. Um, it just makes me want to be better, really. Um, and also I read things differently. If I love something, I will go back and read it again in a kind of, you know, the way some people like to take apart uh, mechanical things to figure out how they work. That's how I will then read something a second time. Like Claire Keegan's book, I've read that three times now in an attempt, a desperate attempt to try to figure out how she does the genius thing that she does. But she's just like uh, a genius. She's incredibly talented. But yeah, no, I, I try to learn from it I, and I try to apply it to my own uh, writing and see if I can uh, use any of the techniques that I, I come across or, or figure out a way to to do what they do or to apply it to my own writing. So I'm inspired by them. With all the books that you read, all the television that you watch, the movies you go to, the music you listen to, do you have time for podcasts? And 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 my children and my husband. Oh, that's right. I forgot about them. Right. I do. I love podcasts. You see, you've got a pile of ironing, right? And you've got to get through it. It's incredibly boring. Um, I put on the podcast then when I'm doing that. And the one I, lo I, I love, Elizabeth Day's um, How to Fail podcast, which has been going for, I think, so many seasons now, maybe seven, maybe more. It must because it's a good few years ago since she yeah, joined us on the program. Yeah, actually, I think. So, yeah, I love that because she gets great guests and they seem to open up um, about their failures in a way that they wouldn't normally in an interview. But also I loved this one called Sweet Bobby, which is this kind of catfishing podcast. It's like an investigation. And it reminded me very much of Serial, like what I describe as the original podcast. Let's go back, though, to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. And let's hear Jamie Dornan. Tell me a bit about how you feel on failure generally, and then we will get on to your specific failures. But is it something that you've always embraced or that you find quite difficult to confront? I think probably as I've got older, being more capable of dealing with it, kind of like everything in life, the older you get, the more capable you become. Learning along the way, I guess, is part of that. And I'm a believer in that with failure. You know, you're sort of nothing without your failures. And there's nobody who gets to any kind of considered high position or impressive position from the outside looking in, who hasn't failed massively. It builds us, it makes us, it colours us, and it's essential. And I I think I wear my failures like a badge of honour a little bit. I wonder did she ask him about failing to master the Southern Irish accent. Oh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it's all about, it makes us who we are, Matt. Failure is part of success, as Elizabeth Day says. Um, yeah, I, I just think those podcasts are very uplifting, actually, because, you know, it's interesting to see what people consider their failures. And, you know, you might consider those successes, but or there's a part of them. It's a vulnerability, I suppose. It exposes a vulnerability in them that you can really connect with as a human being. Well, we're going to finish on that point. Congratulations on the success of your first novel, Breaking Point, and on all future novels as well. Adele Coffey, thank you for joining us here on The Culture Club on The Last Word of Today FM. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.